morning. Welcome to the Speaking Pearls podcast. My name is Rebecca Meitinger. Today we are continuing on in our series on 1 Peter. It has been a couple of weeks since I've been here. I have found that my kids, um, well, now that my kids are home for the summer from school, I am struggling to figure out when to podcast because uh, my schedule is totally different. I am just driving kids throughout the day, whereas they used to be going to school during the daytime. Now they are home, but they also need rides places. So I'm busy doing that. And then when they are home, you know, they're home. (laughs) And so there's four kids and two dogs in my house, and that doesn't necessarily lead to great podcasting time. And so trying to figure out where to do this. Right now it's Sunday morning before we go to church and I told them all they have to stay upstairs because <laughs> I podcast in the basement. And uh, and so just trying to work it out. So if you are somebody who, has, who follows along when I post weekly and now you've noticed like, what? It's been 10 days since 1 Peter chapter 1, the first half went up and When is she going to post the second half of chapter one? Well, today's the day, and I'm just trying to figure out how to manage my schedule this summer. And so far, um, not doing very well. Okay, so despite the fact I haven't been podcasting for the last 10 days, I have been studying, which is the most important part, is doing my study. And I'm very excited to continue on as we go into the second half of 1 Peter chapter 1. So last week what we did is we did a introduction to the letter of 1 Peter. We talked about who Peter is, uh, the disciple of Jesus, the disciple who is famous, famously known for denying Jesus three times, but then being reinstated by Jesus into ministry again three times. Peter, do you love me? Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon, do you love me? You know, three times Jesus reinstated him. Uh, Peter, the one who was willing to get out of the boat and walk on the water. Peter, the one who saw Jesus in the transfiguration and said, let's build some tents and stay here (laughs) because it was amazing and wonderful to be on the mountain with the transfigured Lord Jesus and Elijah and Moses. And Peter was just like, let's build tents and stay. (laughs) Um, This is Peter. I love Peter. Impulsive Peter. Also preacher Peter throughout the book of Acts when he becomes filled with the Holy Spirit. The great preacher Peter. This is him writing this letter. He is writing to exiles who are living in northern Turkey, what is now northern Turkey, and people who are very likely hiding from Roman persecution. So probably not all of them that he's writing to are living in hiding, but a great deal of them would be living in hiding through the tunnels of Cappadocia. We talked about that in our last podcast. So this is would this would be considered a circular letter rather than being sent to one particular church. He's sending it to believers in a region and then it is expected that they will then pass it around. So if they are meeting in like underground tunnel churches while they're in hiding, they would pass this letter around and just imagine the tremendous encouragement that this letter would bring to them. All right, so we are going to Start, pick up today in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. In our last podcast, we made it through 1 Peter chapter 1, 
verses 1 through 12. And one thing that we talked about that we're going to see pick up again in this half of chapter 1 is that Peter is writing to likely a group of combined Jews and Gentiles. We're going to see in this section that we're going to look at today, it really appears that he's in, in this part specifically addressing the Gentiles, those who are of not of Jewish descent, those who did not know that the God of Israel was a God who would include them as well until Pentecost came and people of all nations, all languages were receiving the Holy Spirit and were receiving uh, the good news of the gospel. And then even further, like that was the first foretaste of that, but then even further in Acts chapter 10, Peter, same guy who's writing this letter, received a vision from God and a call to go to Cornelius's house. Cornelius was a Gentile, not a Jew, and, and Peter received uh, information directly from uh, the mouth of God saying that all people are included, the Gentiles and the Jews. And then, of course, that message was expanded immensely further through the Apostle Paul as the Lord gave him great insight into the inclusion of the Gentiles and the ministry to the Gentiles. And and so Peter is in this part that we're going to look at today, it looks like specifically Peter is addressing the Gentiles who are not of Jewish descent. Although his letter, it seems, is to both Jews and non-Jews. But this section, I'll show you why as we go. There's some parts that would specifically refer to the Gentiles, which for most of us listening includes you and I. Some of you listening might be of Jewish descent, and that is awesome. Most of us listening are probably of Gentile descent. And so this is the inclusion of us. <laughs> this is great and wonderful and great news. All right, so... He just wrapped up saying these amazing things that uh, the, the prophets of old were asking and seeking into the Holy Spirit, wondering when the things that they were prophesying would be fulfilled. And that now it has been revealed to you, he's saying. The things that the prophets of old prophesied are now being revealed to you. And that's even more astounding if you think about this difference between Jews and Gentiles that we're just talking about, that these prophets of old, the whole Old Testament, they are Jewish prophets. They are of Jewish heritage. They are of the people of God. Uh, They are the circumcised people of God. And they were asking the Holy Spirit, when, when is this stuff going to be revealed? What times are we talking about? Like all the stuff you're giving us about the Messiah, when is it going to happen? To whom will all of this be revealed? And Peter is saying in this letter, like in verse 12, it says it was revealed to them that they 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 were not serving themselves, but you. And that is so staggering because the you is not just another generation centuries down the road, but it's a whole nother people group. Of course, the Messiah also and first revealed himself to the Jewish people. But Peter is saying they were serving you too, you Gentiles. They didn't even know that they were serving people who were not even of Jewish heritage, but they were serving 
the Gentiles when they spoke of these things, these wonderful things that even the angels long to look into. And I think there when it talks about the things that the angels long to look into, I think it's referring to two great and mighty things. First of all, the inclusion of the Gentiles. That is, uh, like in Paul's letters to the Ephesians and to the Colossians, he writes that the inclusion of the Gentiles is one of the great mysteries of God. One of the greatest and deepest mysteries of God is the inclusion of the Gentiles, and angels long to look into this. And then the second thing that I I believe that the angels are longing to look into is the return of Christ. Because Jesus himself says not even the Son, but only the Father knows the time of the return of the Son. So angels long to look into these things. Uh, Love it. So in verse 13, that's where we're going to pick up with our text for today. Peter writes, therefore, okay, what's the therefore, therefore? That is the question we always have to ask. What is the therefore, therefore? All right, verses 10 through 12 are kind of like an aside. So the therefore has to go back to verses 3 through 8. And in 3 through 8, Peter is telling the people, you are going through great trials. But through these great trials, your faith is being refined to be more more pure than even gold is refined in a fire, and that you will see the fullness of your faith when Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven. At the return of Jesus Christ, you will see the fullness of your faith. And until that time, until the time of the return of Christ, there will be trials of many kind. But be assured, there is an inheritance in heaven that is waiting for you, being kept in heaven for you, that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And so because of that, we have a great joy. It says an inexpressible and glorious joy. Why? Because we are going to receive the salvation of our souls. Like it is an absolute sureness. And so we are filled with joy. That is what what the therefore is there for. Therefore, because the, the salvation is coming. Jesus is coming. The return is coming. Therefore, verse 13, With minds that are alert and fully sober. Okay, we're going to stop right there. With minds that are alert and fully sober. I'm going to read that to you out of the ESV. So through this Bible study, I'm actually teaching out of the NIV. But in front of me all the time on my phone, on my Blue Letter Bible app, I have um, the New English Translation and also the English Standard Version that I am constantly comparing with. And um, in the ESV, verse 13 says, therefore, preparing your minds for action. In the older translations, like the King James Version, what what this most literally means is, gird up the loins of your minds. Uh, So the ESV is preparing your minds for action. The NIV is minds that are alert and fully sober. Um, And then the King James and the the literal translation is gird up the loins of your mind and be sober. So the girding up of your loins, I want to talk about two different things here, the girding up of your loins and also the being sober, because I think that can be kind of confusing. So the girding up of your loins refers back to the, the robes that they would wear 
when when a person needed to really get busy in some like heavy work, some lifting or some running or some like physical action work, what they would do is they would take their robe, their long flowing robes, and they would pull them up and they would tuck them into their belt. And that would be girding up, girding up because you're sticking it into kind of like a girdle, girding up the loins, the fabric. Uh, around your around your robe and tucking it into that belt or like girdle around your waist so that then they could run or do like heavy work do physical labor so girding up the loins of your mind so when it's saying it of your mind it's like getting rid of all of the distraction all of the, the hindrances all of the things that are in your way the confusion the fog the whatever is muddling up your brain so that you aren't able to move forward. Get rid of that. Gird up the loins of your mind. Prepare your minds for action. Keep your mind alert are all the different ways that this is saying this. Your mind has work to do. Your mind has work to do. Do not be lazy. Do not let all the distractions and the hindrances and the things that cause you to trip Don't let them cause you to trip. Gird those things up, tuck them away, and get ready for action. Get ready for action. Now I want to talk about the part that says fully sober, because all of those translations I read say be sober-minded, be fully sober, uh, something like that. And I really struggled with that, because I was like, okay, this can't just be talking about sober the way we think of sober, like not drunk. Like if you're not drunk, you're sober. There must be something else that sober means. So the dictionary is my good friend. So I didn't know this. News to me, sober does not just mean not drunk. (laughs) Sober means marked by sedate, gravely, or earnestly thoughtful character. Now what makes me really laugh is when I look up a word in the dictionary and the definition causes me to look up another word in the dictionary. So that happened here. So just to repeat, the definition for sober is marked by sedate, gravely, or earnestly thoughtful character. Then I was like, okay, if I'm marked by sedate character, like I get the earnestly thoughtful character. Um, gravely would mean like seriously thoughtful character. I really do. I want very much. Oh my goodness. I want to be marked by earnestly thoughtful character. My goodness. I would like to be known that way. I highly doubt that I am known that way. I'm very scattered. I'm very, very scattered. But my goodness, I would love to be known as somebody who is marked by earnestly thoughtful character. But that still left me a question because the the definition of sober-minded meant marked by sedate, gravely, or earnestly thoughtful character, which meant I needed to look up the word sedate because all that sedate sedate means to me is uh, you can take sedatives and calm down, right? (laughs) I was like, I don't really get this. So what does this really mean? Well, sedate as an adjective would mean calm, dignified, or unhurried. Wow, I would like to be like this. So to be with my mind alert and fully sober would mean that my mind and my life, therefore, is marked by calm, dignified, unhurried, 
earnestly thoughtful character. Isn't that awesome? I would like to be like that. I'm not yet. Certainly not. Thank goodness the Lord is still sanctifying me through and through and making me like Jesus. But think about this in in relation to Jesus. Like we are we are growing to become like Jesus. That is the whole point of life is to become like Jesus. And so just think about Jesus. His mind was alert. It was prepared for action. All the time, the loins of Jesus's mind were girded up. Like he had no distractions or, um, I mean, of course there were things that could distract him, but his mind was so on point all the time that nothing tripped him up, nothing distracted him, nothing hindered his ability to think clearly and to love clearly. His mind was on point all the time. It's just beautiful. And then his mind was sober all the time, marked by calm, dignified, unhurried, earnestly thoughtful character. Isn't that beautiful? That is who Jesus is. That is how he lived. That is how he spent his days. That is how his mind worked. I want to be like Jesus. So as we do that, as we, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. All right, this is so important. The the call to set our hope on the return of Christ has never been as clear and as bold and as loud in my life as, as it has been in the last nine months. I mean, just the clarity of scripture Set your mind on the return of Christ. Romans 8 has so much of that language in it. It is the theme of Romans 8. And and as I studied, I just found it, I found it everywhere. Like it's everywhere <laughs> throughout the New Testament. And, and actually throughout the Old Testament as well. A little bit more hidden in the Old Testament, but it is absolutely there. Uh, but in the New Testament, it is just right there all the place, all over the place. Like the one thing, the one thing, the only thing that we should ever set our hopes on is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And any time that we have our hope set anywhere else, we have misplaced our hope. It is not the return of Christ and. Our hope cannot be set on the return of Christ and the stock market. Our hope cannot be set on the return of Christ and a good bill of health. Our hope cannot be set on the return of Christ and uh, world peace. Our, Our hope cannot be set on the return of Christ and the political system. It's just, it can't be that. It can't be that. Now, as, as, People who live here, we have a duty to work hard in all these other ways as well. Um, the Apostle Paul says, as long as uh, it is up to you, live at peace with all people. Like we have a responsibility to live well here, but that doesn't mean we set our hope here. We want to live well here, but we don't set our hope here. Our hope can only be set on the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this verse uses really unique language. It says, set your hope on the grace 
to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming? Well, what is going to be brought to us? Well, grace, clearly the grace that will be brought to us. But also in 1 John 3 verse 2, it says that when we see him, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. So the grace that will be brought to us is the grace of seeing clearly the Lord Jesus Christ and being transformed into his likeness. I mean, talk about grace. We get to be transformed into the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ simply by seeing his face. And then also he's bringing with him the inheritance. So the grace that will be brought to us when Jesus Christ is revealed goes all the way back to verse 4 of this same chapter, 1 Peter chapter 1. It says that we have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. When Jesus comes, he's going to bring it. He's going to bring the inheritance. And so that is the grace that will be brought to us. I want you to think about your hope. Think about your hope as like a really beautiful, precious, priceless crystal vase. And think about you're holding this crystal vase and you're trying to figure out where to set it down. Where are you going to set down this crystal vase? If you set it on the edge of something and then it gets knocked, it will fall over and it will shatter all over your floor. If you set it on something that is topsy-turvy, it will shatter and hit the floor. If you set it on something that isn't strong enough, like maybe it's kind of steady, but it's weak. Um, it, the, the crystal crystal's heavy. The heavy crystal will fall through that, will break through that weak service, and it will shatter on the ground. So where are you going to set down this beautiful crystal vase? Then in verse 14, he goes on and he says, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. All right. So this is where I think, you know, I said earlier that I think in this chunk of scripture, he, Peter is writing specifically to the Gentiles. And here's where I see this. He says, as obedient children... Do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. All right, so he's going to talk about later on about how you were handed down uh, ways of living and ways of thinking from your ancestors that were futile. They were useless. So that would be referring to uh, really all of the, the false religions, the false gods handed down to people throughout the Roman Empire, throughout um, all the, the, the Greek gods, the Roman gods, the Egyptian gods, like all, all the false gods that these people would have worshipped prior to hearing about the one true God. Um, and, it, and it says when you lived in ignorance, you know, sometimes we misunderstand the word ignorant and we might use it as calling somebody rude, like, oh, they're just ignorant. And we think it, we, we think it means rude. It really doesn't mean rude, though. To be ignorant of something means that you simply don't know it. Um, You know, the phrase ignorance is bliss. (laughs) Everything is better when we don't know. Like if we don't really know what's going on, we're like, oh, everything's okay. And then when we 
find out all all what's going on underneath the surface, we're like, oh, this is not okay. Ignorance is bliss. When they lived in ignorance, they just didn't know. They were living in an, a, a period, a stage of not knowing the one true God, of not knowing all these, the patterns of evil life. I mean, when you look into the the ways of worship for all, all the false gods, uh, the Romans gods, the Greek gods, the activities that went on in the temples to these false gods, when, when we talk about the evil desires, if, if you're unaware of the practices that went on in the name of worship, uh, dig into a little bit. I mean, the temple prostitution and the orgies and therefore the diseases that were just rampant, rampant. The horrific ways of sacrificing babies to these gods. I mean, just horribly evil practices. Uh, of the ways that they killed their babies uh, for the sake of worshiping these false gods. So, yes, they were evil. I mean, it was evil. The practices they partook in were evil because they lived in ignorance. They didn't know about the one true God. They didn't know. And now they know. So Peter is saying in verse 15, Just as he who called you is holy... So be holy in all that you do. He called you and he made you holy. So then, therefore, live holy. He made you holy. He is holy. And so the expectation on our lives as those who follow him and those who know better is to therefore live holy. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. And that is out of... uh, Leviticus. I want to just point pull us back into Philippians though, uh, because this can be a little bit difficult because we think, well, if he made us holy, how then do we be holy? You know, like, well, he made us holy, so why does he tell us to be holy? So I want to jump into Philippians for a second. Um, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 through 13, Paul writes, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So Paul is saying, um, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I love that because, look, you're already saved. You're saved through faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, on the cross, Jesus made you holy. Now, live it out. Or as Paul says, Paul says, work out your salvation. You're saved. Now, work it out. Like, walk in those ways. Jesus made you holy. Now partner with him in the process of sanctification, in the process of becoming like Jesus. Partner with the Holy Spirit. The way Galatians 5 says it is keep in step with the Spirit. You've been given the Spirit. The Spirit grows fruit. If you want those fruit to grow in your life, keep in step with the Spirit. Um, In Hebrews, this is a really helpful place to go here, Hebrews 10.10 says, um, And by that will, by the will of God, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So we have been made holy 
once and for all. Jesus did it. Through the blood of Jesus, we've been made holy. Now, live holy. As obedient children, live holy. You've been made holy. Are you willing to live holy is really the question before us. Why? Because we are no longer ignorant. We know better. We have the word of God that has been taught to us to teach us how to live, so we have no excuse to live in ignorance. Okay, verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. All right, so going back to that same thing we just talked about in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, it says, you are going to work out your salvation. You've been given salvation, now work it out. And so here Peter writes, live out your time um, with reverent fear. Not being afraid of God by any means. We're not afraid of God, but we have reverent fear or honor for him. In honor of what he has done for us, we want to live out our time here as foreigners, as people who are not citizens of earth, but citizens of heaven. We want to live well on earth out of honor for God. Now, verse 18, I find really, really fascinating. It says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. All right, so this is also another clue here that he's writing specifically to the Gentiles because he says that they were handed down an empty way of life from their ancestors. So that empty way of life would have been a life that worshipped false gods, that did not know the one true God. So that would have been the Gentile people. But here's what's so amazing about this. He says, you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed. Okay, so I did a little bit of studying on on gold because I was like, is gold perishable? In this world, (laughs) by scientists or um, I guess metalists, Gold is not considered perishable. Uh, let me read a sentence that I wrote down from you from a metalist. I just found him online. He's a, he's a guy who works with metal. And he says, Gold won't break down after a 1,000 or 10,000 years unless conditions on Earth change drastically. As a noble metal, <clears throat> it resists oxidation, even when heated in its pure form. So... Gold is considered non-perishable compared to the things on earth. But Paul, I mean, sorry, Peter here is not comparing it to anything on earth. He's comparing it with the precious blood of Christ. And compared to the precious blood of Christ, even gold is considered perishable. He calls gold and silver perishable. So what people on earth, people who are who work with metals on planet earth and who work with um, like the table of elements <laughs> on planet earth, they would consider gold to be imperishable. But Peter makes it clear here that compared to the blood of Christ, even things that are considered imperishable on earth are in fact perishable. Because the blood of Christ is so very beyond that, like completely 
incapable of ever having any signs of perishing. The blood of Christ covers us, seals us, redeems us, saves us, sanctifies us, makes us holy through and through forever and ever and ever and ever for all of eternity. And in comparison, even things that we consider on earth to be imperishable, like gold, even those things compared to the blood of Christ are in fact perishable. The blood of Christ is so all-encompassing. It is bigger and more perfect and more everlasting than anything that we can wrap our minds around. Then Peter goes a little bit more into the way that Jesus was called. Verse 20, he says, He was chosen, Jesus was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. In Revelation 13, 8, it says very similar, the same thing. Uh, In 13, 8b, it says, The lamb that was slain from the creation of the world. And here it says that Jesus was chosen before the creation of the world. So I love that we're getting this full picture of the Trinity before the creation of the world. Before the creation of the world, Jesus was chosen to be the one who would redeem the world and bring the world back into right relationship with God. Before the fall ever even happened, before Genesis 3 happened, before the world was even created, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit knew what was going to happen and chose in advance that God the Son would come to earth put on human flesh, be born in a human body, live out God's ways perfectly on planet Earth, love perfectly, lead perfectly, teach perfectly, live perfectly, and then die so that we all may be redeemed back into relationship with God. He was chosen before the world was created. Revelation 13.8 goes a step further and says that, that the, he was slain from the creation of the world, which means in the mind of God, it was already done. Before the world was even created, in the mind of God, in the plan of God, it was so set in stone that the Son was going to redeem the world back to the Father that it was considered already done before the world was even created. I mean, it's just mind-blowing. But he was revealed in these last times for your sake. And I love that too. If he's still specifically addressing the Gentiles here, which it seems in this paragraph he is, he is saying that Jesus was revealed for your sake. So we know for certain Jesus was sent first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. But Peter is writing right here, I think, to the Gentiles. And he wants them to know, look, he was revealed for you. You weren't like a second thought. You weren't an afterthought. You weren't like a, oh, I suppose we can bring them too. It wasn't like that. He was revealed for you. God intended Jesus to save you. And then he goes on to verse 21 and he says, Through him you believed in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and your hope are in God. Verse 22. Peter writes, Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, 
so that you have sincere love for each other. Love one another deeply from the heart. All right, we got to go back again. We're going to repeat a theme that we went through a little bit ago and a couple verses ago. He says, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth. Now that could trip us up because we're like, wait a minute, we purify ourselves? I thought Jesus purified us. All right, I'm going to jump back to Hebrews. In Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, who we don't know who it is, says this in, in um, chapter 9, verses 13 to 15. The writer of Hebrews says, The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonial unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciousness from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. All right, so that is confusing language. But what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that if we can outwardly become sanctified through the the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, the sprinkling of the blood of goats and bulls, that, that will sanctify us outwardly, but it has to be repeated over and over. How much more will the precious blood of Christ cleanse our consciences? Now, other translations, this is the NIV, but other translations where this one says cleanse, other translations say purify our consciences. So the blood of Christ is going to purify our conscience. Our conscience. In um, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11, Paul is writing, and he's writing to the people of Corinth that were, in fact, primarily Gentile. And he says, he lists all these ways of living in sin. And he says, some of you were like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So both, if we look at that Hebrews text, Hebrews 9 verses 13 and 14, that says the blood of Christ has purified our consciences. And then if we look at 1 Corinthians 6 saying that through the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God, we are washed, sanctified, and justified, then yes, the purification that we receive comes through Jesus, through his blood, through the Spirit of God, we are purified. But verse 22 in 1 Peter 1 says, now that you have purified yourselves. What in the world? <laughs> okay, well, let's go back. Earlier we talked about how um, Jesus made us holy, but then we are told, now be holy. And we looked in Philippians where it said, work out your salvation. Even though you've already been given salvation as a gift, it is by faith that you have been saved through grace. Um, so then why do we have to work out our salvation? We've been made holy, but we are asked to live holy. We've been given salvation, but we are asked to work out our salvation, to walk in it. We've been given the fruits of the Spirit, but we are told to walk in step with the Spirit so that the fruit can grow. And here it says, you have been purified through the blood of Christ, the precious blood of Christ. Now, also, purify yourselves by obeying the truth. You've been made purified. Now, keep it like that. Keep walking in obedience. Keep walking in obedience. 
And here it says that the fruit of walking in obedience and obeying the truth says so that you have a sincere love for each other. Love one another deeply from the heart. Okay, this is applied to so many different things. You see this, um, love each other deeply from the heart. Of course, we should apply this to all our relationships, certainly. But I don't want to miss what I think Peter is getting at here because it pretty much blows my mind. Remember, he is writing to specifically two groups, groups of people who have great division between them. Great division, the Jews and the Gentiles. And I think here what he is really getting at, the heart of what he's saying is saying, keep walking in the truth so that you love each other deeply. Love each other deeply. You who have major divisions, major chasms, people who never ever thought that the other group could be included in the grace of God. Walk together in love. Love each other deeply where you have the biggest chasms of divide, uh, two groups of people who never ever thought they could be aligned one with another and loved by the same God. A chasm that is deeper than most of us can, can really understand. Love each other deeply. Love each other deeply. All right. So love each other deeply from the heart. Why? Verse 23. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. So he goes back here, right back to the beginning of this chapter. He said, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. And then he writes this several paragraphs and he comes back to this to say why should you love each other deeply from the heart how can you love each other deeply from the heart because you have been born again because you've been born again into a living hope you are no longer stuck in your old patterns get out of those old patterns you have been freed from those old patterns and step fully into this new living hope that you've been given. And in that place, you can love each other deeply, no matter the chasms that have been passed down to you for hundreds, thousands of years. No matter that, put it aside and love each other deeply. And then he says, you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. And then he recites here from Isaiah chapter 40, and he says, For all people are like grass. Their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. All people are like grass. Our time on earth is so short, it's just going to blow away. But the word of God endures forever. It is imperishable. It is an imperishable seed, the word of God. And this is the word that was preached to you. The word that is imperishable is the word that was preached to you. 
As we wrap up, I just want to point out a few patterns of repeated words. I don't have a lot of like insight about these, but I think that they are worth pointing out <laughs> and letting you dig into. So as I studied 1 Peter chapter 1, I found three words specifically that were repeated. First of all, the perishable and imperishable theme in this chapter is very significant. I will run through where they are, and if you are in a place that you can take notes, uh, go ahead and jot these down, and then if you want to go back and study what is called perishable and imperishable is, uh, I think, a really valuable lesson. So in verse 4, um, the inheritance that is coming at us cannot perish. The inheritance that's coming cannot perish, spoil, or fade. In verse 7, uh, Paul writes that gold perishes even though refined by fire, which we already talked about is funny because compared to things on earth, gold is considered imperishable, but compared to the things of God, even gold is perishable. Verse 17 says the same thing that, or verse 18, I'm sorry, says silver and gold are perishable, but the blood of Christ is compared with it as, and it's implied as imperishable, the blood of Christ. And then in verse 23, it says that we were born again, not with a perishable seed. Like when you and I were born, the seed that, that uh, was used to conceive us is perishable. You and I are going to perish. Like our physical bodies are going to perish. We are like grass that blows away. But we've been reborn with an imperishable seed, the word of God, which means that, yes, our lives on earth will come to an end, but then we will have a life that lives on eternally through the blood of Jesus, through the salvation of the Lord Jesus, through the word of God, which is the word that has been preached to us. So perishable and imperishable. Another word that repeats five times is revealed or revealing. So in verse 5, it says that our salvation will be revealed when Jesus Christ is revealed. In verse 7, he repeats that Jesus will, in fact, be revealed and, um, and that our faith will then result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus is revealed. In verse 12, it says uh, that the Holy Spirit revealed prophecy to the prophets of old. In verse 13, it says that Jesus will be revealed at his coming and that we ought to set our hope on that, on his revealing. And in verse, so that was 13. And in verse 20, it says that um, Jesus was chosen before the creation of the world, but he, he was revealed or made manifest, um, put on his human flesh in these last times. And then the last word that I found repetitions of fewer but still very significant, I thought, was the theme of obedience. Three times, uh, Paul, sorry, Peter, <laughs> says that, um, that we ought to be obedient. So in verse 2, it says that he's writing to people who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of the Father and the sanctifying work of the Spirit, Spirit to be obedient to Jesus. You've been chosen and sanctified to be obedient. And then in verse 14, it says, as obedient children. You know, I didn't really talk about this, um, and this is the longest podcast I've ever recorded, I think, at this point. <laughs> but what's really wonderful is he's saying as obedient ch children here, the reason he can call these um, Gentiles children is, goes, I mean, we can go back to like the book of Romans, but... Um, 
uh, I'm thinking about the timeline. I think Romans had been written by the time Peter wrote this letter. But certainly, uh, many years before Peter wrote this letter, um, he received the vision from God to go to Cornelius and that everything was clean, everything is included in. And he was receiving a vision that Gentiles can become children of God. Like Gentiles can be children of God with Jews. And that was a staggering, staggering thing for them to grasp onto. Um, So now he's calling them as obedient children. You are children of God. Um, Obey him. Walk with him. And then in verse 22, uh, the theme of obedience comes again, that you have been, you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth. So this theme of obedience is very clear here too. You have been chosen to obey. Be obedient children. And, that, and you will purify yourselves. You will walk in purification by obeying the truth. So those are the three themes that I see primarily. And it will be fun as we go through First Peter to see how those themes continue to come out. All right. So if you have hung in here for 50 minutes, thank you. <laughs> you rock. Um, it is just a joy. It's a joy to study scripture with you. I look forward to continuing on. You have an awesome, awesome day.